Well, legend has it that the Trojans were able to withstand the great siege of the Greeks upon their city for 10 whole years. The Greeks threw everything they could at them, right? Vast armies, a huge armada, legendary warriors, and yet nothing could get through and into that city. And then one morning, the Trojans woke up and they looked outside their walls and where had been an army encamped against them was now just an empty beach. There was nothing, nothing except for a big wooden horse. You remember this part of the story, the the Trojans think that they've won the day. So they go and they, they gather their trophy and they haul it into the city, unwittingly dragging along 30 of their fiercest enemies. And they bring it into the very heart of their city. And they go to bed, go to sleep, thinking they've overcome their enemies, only to wake up to find that overnight their city has been overcome, overthrown from the inside. The church in our passage this morning was primed to make that same mistake. And I'm always fearful that so are we. The church at Pergamum had had held up against external onslaught that few could have resisted. But now they're in danger of unwittingly inviting their enemy to take them over from within. If you would, turn with me to the last book in your Bibles, the book of Revelation. Today we're going to study the letter to the church at Pergamum, and it's found in chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 12. Now, the Apostle John was given this singular revelation from Christ while exiled on the island of Patmos. It's addressed to seven churches, and they're real churches in real cities in the Roman province of Asia, which is now modern-day western Turkey. So some of these cities we've come across before in other parts of Scripture, most notably Ephesus and kind of to a lesser degree Laodicea. And the book of Revelation is sent to all seven churches collectively, but each of them receives a personal note from Christ in chapters 2 and 3. And each letter contains the admonition, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So while the letter we're going to read today is addressed to a particular church at a particular time in particular circumstances, it is meant, it's intended by the Holy Spirit to be an open letter, to be applicable to all who have ears to hear what he would say to us today. Our particular letter, as I said, is is directed toward the church in Pergamum. So Pergamum was the the third city in this series. So Ryan Troglin got us started in this uh, when we looked at the letters to Ephesus and Smyrna back in May. And we're going to pick up where he left off and carry on for the next five weeks going through the rest of these letters. So you need to know that Pergamum was a a large city. It, It boasted like the second largest library in the world at the time. It was filled with enormous temples that were dedicated uh, to the worship of Greek gods and to the Roman emperor. And so Christ now is going to speak to this city, this church in this city. Let's hear his words now. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. As you can see here, despite withstanding previous external threats, the church at Pergamum must now deal with internal threats. Or they risk facing Christ on the battlefield instead of in the banquet feast. So we're going to look at the example and the exhortations that we find in this letter kind of in three movements this morning. And it's going to help us understand how we are to act as a church. So first, we are to hold fast to Christ's name. Hold fast to Christ's name. Secondly, we're to hold back false teaching from Christ's church. To hold back as false teaching seeks to come into Christ's church. And then we're to hold out. We're to wait for Christ's final feast. Not settling for anything between here and now, between now and then. So, how do we hold fast to Christ's name? Well, the great city of Pergamum was packed with all sorts of threats against the church. Verse 13 makes it clear that there are both uh, spiritual and physical forces that have gathered to conspire to oppose the spread of the gospel and the vitality of this church. So key among those weapons are going to be persecution and temptation. Let's look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Satan, he's, this, he's the chief enemy of God and his people. And his name literally means adversary. And we find him here front and center in the siege on the church at Pergamum. Now, there could be a historical reference that is being made here to, to the city of Pergamum. It could be that Satan's throne is a reference to a 40-foot altar that had been erected to the, king, uh, to the god Zeus there in the city. It might be that the temple that's dedicated to the Greek god of medicine was literally filled with snakes. It could be that it's in regards to Roman uh, emperor worship, which was obligatory in many areas of civic life. And those Christians that refused to bow the knee would have experienced persecution. I mean, even unto death, we see in our passage. Whatever that historical reference might be, I think what matters here is that Jesus is reminding this church the same thing that the Apostle Paul reminded their neighbors in Ephesus 
and when he wrote to them in Ephesians chapter 6, when he said, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul was no stranger to persecution. We read about it in the, in the records of his missionary journeys in places like Thessalonica and Philippi. We would have seen it and the scars on his back. And yet, even as he has stared into the evil eyes of people who have lashed him for his faith, yet still he knows and reminds the Ephesians and Christ reminds the Pergamines and we remember today that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We know that our battle is ultimately spiritual. We are we're combatants in a greater war. And, the pressure, and pressure will come to us. It will come from all angles. And it will push us to want to renounce our faith, to, to cower before our enemies. For Antipas, it came even to the point of death. Now, that may not be what you will face this week in persecution, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who face that even today. Maybe it's in Kaduna, Nigeria, where just this month, Faluni herdsmen have kidnapped 153 schoolchildren from Bethel Baptist School. 125 of those are still unaccounted for. And since that time, those same herdsmen have terrorized the region. They've killed 33 villagers. They've burned four churches. They've destroyed hundreds of homes. And why? Well, there's all sorts of sociological reasons we might be able to attribute to it. But what we know is that we are in a spiritual battle. And that Satan is looking to kill, steal, and destroy. And even as he uses people for that end, who we fight is our great enemy, the adversary. Now, we may, not, we may ask, why? Why does this kind of thing happen? When we see atrocities like this, what are we to think? Are we to think that God's arm is shortened? That he, that he can't save? That he doesn't see? That he doesn't know? No, he knows. He knows. Now, even as the evil forces misuse the power of the sword that's been given to them by God, yet, we see in our passage there stands a true and righteous judge who carries his sharp two-edged sword, and he's ready, and he knows. I know where you dwell, he says, and his purposes are greater. His purposes involve the refining of his saints and the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel that even those, as they do these evil deeds, would see our good works and turn and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so we hold fast to the name. Hold fast to the name. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we face persecution for our faith, whatever that may, form that may come in, we hold fast to his name. When we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world facing severe persecution, we pray that they would hold fast to his name, that they would identify themselves with Christ. 
I was talking with a missionary this just last week who serves in the United Arab Emirates. And he was explaining to me that whenever he meets somebody new, he makes it a point that the first three times he has interaction with them, he always makes sure he connects his life to Christ. Now, if they, if by God's grace, they have lots more conversations after that, he, he, he knows he doesn't need to fill every single one of those conversations with the gospel. But if he gets a chance, first and foremost, right out of the gate with someone, he's going to identify himself with Christ. Not merely as a, as a God-fearer or as a religious person or as a moral person, but as one who follows Jesus. For Antipas, in his final witness, He proclaims the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as his reward, Christ gives him a title of his very own. He's called here the faithful witness. And this is a title Jesus has already given to himself. In chapter 1, verse 5, and then one of the letters later, in chapter 3, verse 14, he calls himself the faithful witness. And so in this moment, as Antipas is going to his death, He is standing in the place of his Savior as the faithful witness to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ because he held fast to the name. When we are persecuted, when we pray for those who are persecuted, we pray that they would hold fast to the name because by so doing, they proclaim the faithful witness of the good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible is filled with all sorts of prayers that we can pray when we pray for the persecuted church and we pray for those within our church who experience that. And and in particular, the Bible is filled with prayers for that God is our refuge and our strength. He's our ever-present help in time of need. And we can pray those prayers for one another. But there's a unique turn that happens particularly in the New Testament. When When New Testament Christians face persecution, they don't ask that God would remove the persecution that God would save them physically, that God would rescue them. Instead, in Acts chapter 4, they say, God, see these threats. See these threats that are upon us and give us boldness. Boldness to hold fast to the name. Brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever persecution looks like in your name, identify quickly with Christ and do not deny the faith. Do not deny the faith. Or particularly, don't deny your faith in him. Trust that he is in control. That he stands ready, not slow as some count slowness, but in his exact perfect timing to do the work you know he can do. And remember that he knows you. Oh, what a sweet balm in the midst of persecution. To read in verse 13, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Jesus knows the place and the time. He knows the people and he knows exactly what they need. He knows that it's not, they're not in too evil of a place or a time. The persecution's not too hard for them to continue to be faithful. He knows them. Brother and sister in Christ, he knows you. He knows you. He knows how hard it is at work. He knows how hard it is at home. He knows what you're facing. He knows you. So don't pretend you don't know him. Hold fast to his name. Do not deny the faith. So show love to that cousin or that sibling well for for years, despite their opposition to you. 
despite the fact that you declined to be in their same-sex wedding, speak volumes of the love of Christ to them for years and years and years, despite their opposition to you. Remember, at work, there are things that are more eternal than just a job. Work is unto the Lord, but don't work as if work is the Lord. Your ultimate boss does not sit in a corner office, but in the throne of heaven. And so, work hard and bear up, even under the frustration of getting passed over for a promotion because you won't work on Sundays, or you won't fudge the numbers, or you, you won't call what is good evil and what is evil good. Stay steadfast. In so doing, you will show your coworkers that you are satisfied in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Students, Remember, there is one in whose eyes we should seek more favor than we strive to seek it and to gain status in the eyes of our peers or our professors. Yes, you may be ridiculed for old-fashioned ways. Yes, your grades may suffer for holding fast to the name of Christ. But remember, Christ knows the corridors of your high school just as well as he knew the boulevards of Pergamum. And so don't deny your faith in him. Whatever external persecutions may come, don't deny your faith. And whenever temptations may come in front of you, hold fast to his name. Because that's the other tool, that's the other weapon in the arsenal that Pergamum is bringing against the church there in their city. Yes, they are persecuting them, but also they are tempting them with everything that they could offer. Everything that they could offer. Not only was Pergamum a city filled with persecution, but sexual immorality, decadence, moral degradation, temple prostitution, feasts that, that quickly devolved into, into, into orgies. The temptation to acquiesce was high. The temptation to, to cower, to justify... <coughs> to justify... Some, sometimes... We feel, thank you for your patience. I'm trying to preach without a frog. All right. <laughs> the temptations were high at, at every corner. We feel that, don't we? We feel that every time we look at the news, every time we pull out that little magic box in our pocket, every corner in every place, there are temptations for us to be drawn into the things that this world provides, this thing that this, the things that this world offers. And so we need to hold back against that. We must hold back against settling for the things of this world. We have to hold back teachings within the church that might allow for that. That's, I think, the second and most important thing that Christ writes to the church in Pergamum, that they must hold back false teaching from the church. In verses 14 and 15, we read, but I have a few things against you. That's trouble. That's new in the letters, to have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
All right, so we have these dual teachings here of the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the teaching of the Nicolaitans we've already seen earlier. We saw it in Ephesus. We don't know a ton about what the Nicolaitans taught. All we know is that Ephesus is commended for opposing it, and God hates it. Now, what seems to be happening here in this passage is that Jesus is giving them an Old Testament example of the kind of teachings that should be opposed, but that are creeping into the church. And then a contemporary example of what that looks like in their very midst. And I think they're meant to be parallel, or maybe even to understand them as an expansion or an escalation of one upon the other. And so let's look instead at the one we have a lot more clarity on. What are the teachings of Balaam? Now you you may remember the character of Balaam, the story of Balaam. We find it in Numbers, uh, particularly chapters 22 through 24. And most of us remember the story of Balaam because it's the story of the talking donkey. But kind of like when we looked at Jonah, I want us to be hesitant not to focus on cartoonish animals and instead to focus on the character analysis that's happening to the man in the story. And so what's happening here? Well, we'll Balaam is a prophet. He's hired by the king of Moab, Balak, and he's hired to curse the Israelites as they are moving through the Exodus and into the promised land. And as you read it in Numbers 22 through 24, he seems to be really bad at his job. Like we're not really sure why he's a villain because each time he tries to curse the Israelites and each of his four oracles turn into a blessing. And then at the end, having blessed the people of Israel four times, he just disappears, it seems. Chapter 24 ends with, Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. And so you read in Revelation and you think, well, what did this guy do? Is this teaching blessing? But the New Testament authors have picked up on a small note that comes five or six chapters later. And Jude and Peter and now in Revelation, we all recognize that no, Balaam was not a good guy who, had, who ended up in a funny little story and who blessed the people of Israel. He was a bad guy. He was an enemy. And how do we know this? Well, we find it in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. It says, Behold, these, being the Moabites, on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident at Peor. And so the plague came among the the congregation of the Lord. This is where the treachery is revealed. And that now finally makes sense because if you're reading through Numbers 22-24 and you get to the end of the story about Balaam, 25 is a weird twist, kind of seemingly out of nowhere. It just tells you that the that the people of Israel suddenly started to pursue sexual immorality with the Moabites. And and they start being invited to their feasts, and they go to those feasts, and they eat the food that's been sacrificed to idols, and then they bow down and they worship these false gods. Sin begets sin begets sin. It's all bundled together. This is the dangerous teaching that Balaam gave to Balak. It's as if on his parting ways, he was like, I'm sorry those four curses didn't work out, but if you really want to stop the people of Israel, just get into their homes, get into their bedrooms, 
Get into their private spaces. Get into their heart and draw them to worship your God and they'll be stopped in their tracks. That's exactly what happens in Numbers 25. And Christ is warning the people of Pergamum, the church at Pergamum, that that's exactly what will happen to them. And church here at UBC, that's exactly what will happen to us. Our progress in the faith will be ground to a halt when we let in the secret sins of our lives. When we allow teachings that point us toward or allow for us to continue in those secret sins. And so what does Christ say to the church at Pergamum? He says in verse 16, Therefore, repent. Repent. Turn around. Stop what you're doing. Go back the other direction. Go the way you were supposed to be going. I think we're supposed to repent of several things here. First, I think we, we repent of the, of the practices, the moral practices, the failings we see here in this passage. We need to repent of eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, what does that mean for us here and now? Well, the, the New Testament gives us some clarity on this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul explains that it's not the eating that's the problem. All food is made good, is clean in the eyes of God. And those idols that it's been sacrificed to, they're nothing. They're not real. The problem is not the eating, it's the worshiping. We so easily fall into worshiping false gods. We so easily try to sustain ourselves on that worship of those false gods. And and then we, we fill ourselves in the acts of worship with the things that come from those idols. So maybe your idols are found in your bank accounts or it's on your phone, it's in your garage, it's just in your head. I don't know where you keep your shrine to your idol, but you have to find it and destroy it. And so, yes, it is wonderful and wise to have a retirement account But don't worship that. And don't live off of and sustain yourself physically, morally, spiritually off of the hopes that you've stored up for yourselves in the future. Yes, it's perfectly fine to have an Instagram account. But be careful that you don't live off of the opinions and the praise of others. If if I were to confess here and now where I would find my idol, it would easily be in y'all. It would easily be that as my fear of man and my delight in your praises would, would make me want to be here in this space so that y'all would think much of me and not much of my Savior. That you would be, that your hearts would be quickened by the, the turns of phrase that I have and you would forget the very word of God that we've opened up together this morning. Lord, forgive me of how easily I turn to that. Maybe yours is the same. Whatever it might be, repent of those things. Find those idols and kill them. And do not live off of the bread, the meat that may come from them. Instead, turn and trust in Christ. 
We need to repent not only of eating food sacrifice to idols, but of sexual immorality. And actually, we'll spend a ton of time on that next week. Next week's letter picks, picks that theme up again. But I want to remind you here and now, brother and sister in particular, if you are practicing sexual immorality, if you're pursuing sexual pleasure or pursuits or actions with anyone outside of, of your spouse, let, let me tell you that that is downstream from a long list of sins. And yes, you need to repent of that. And what you do in your private spaces, you absolutely need to stop and to kill that. But follow the train upstream because there are more and more things that have built and escalated and we don't want to settle for just having killed off the one thing and not realize that there's way more death that's, that's upstream for us in our lives. Examine what those things may be. Do them together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we'll see here in a moment. And then we need to repent of teachings that lead to sin. I think that's actually the primary thing that we're called to repent of here. It's not merely the practices of eating food sacrificed to idols or of sexual immorality, but more so, it's upstream. It's those very teachings that would allow for that. So maybe these are things that are, are clear contradictions of Scripture. That when we open God's Word routinely, often, uh, to study it well by ourselves and with others, well, we're, we're, we're brought to our knees to realize what I have thought, what I have done, clearly contradicts Scripture. Maybe these are teachings within our own hearts on justifications that, that downplay sin or, or, or the consequences of it. Maybe we, we hear things in our own head or we say things or we listen to others that, that sound something like, well, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, did God really say? But, but you don't understand, these are my new, these are my new neighbors, the, the Moabites. And, and I, I want to befriend them. I want them, I want them to, to get to know us. Maybe, maybe they'll, they'll, become, they'll become Christians too. I don't, maybe I want, I want to be sensitive to their cultural expressions. I, I'm just dabbling in these little things. Whatever those tiny little justifications may be in your own heart, find them and remove them. Repent of them. Don't, don't brag about how close you can get to the line of sin. Run. Run from sin. Because the consequences to this sin are not a slap on the wrist. They're not a frown from mom and dad. The consequences of this sin are dire. Look what it says. Therefore repent. If not, I. Pick up the pronouns here. I. Who's I? This is Jesus. Who is Jesus in this letter? He's the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is coming soon. That's a, a, a huge hope and warning that we find in Revelation, particularly towards the end. Chapter 22, eight times he reminds us that he is coming soon. And when he comes... He will come as a warrior. He will come to make war. In Revelation 19, we are told that he comes with an army behind him, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. When he comes again, he will come to take out those who have continued in sin and who have opposed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will war against them. Do not be counted among them. Did you catch the pronoun shift there? He says, I will come to you. Church at Pergamum, I will come to you. I will come to you soon. And when I do, I will war against them. I will war against them. The picture here is is that we are gathered together, bound by our our covenant to one another and to our God as brothers and sisters in Christ. But even within us, there might be those who are not of us, but are them. And we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, need to fear for those among us, especially if it is ourselves who might be counted among the them. That's why God has given us the mechanism of church discipline. He's outlined it in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is what the church at Pergamum is called to do, to go to those among them who are giving false teaching, to explain their fault, and to call them to repent. And if they do... You've gained back your brother. They're not a them. They're a one of us. That's what we do. That's a, the, and we do that often. Often in, in small ways. In, in, in formative ways. We practice church discipline constantly. And by God's grace, the vast, 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 vast majority of times that Matthew 18 is in play, it's in this verse. And it's constantly having a refining work in our life. But what happens if they don't? Well, verse 16 tells us, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, those who have clearly walked away from following God. The command, the expectation is that we would even Bring it to the church. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 5 kind of plays that out for us. And it tells us, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, this one who is unrepentant, in serious, demonstrable sin, you're to deliver this man to Satan, the accuser, the one who's crouching at the door. We we deliver them to Satan so that for the destruction of their flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We go through this heart-wrenching, difficult process. We don't, we don't run from the hard work of church discipline because we love them, and we care for them, and we care for their eternal soul, and we want their soul to be saved in the day of the Lord, not to be at war on the day of the Lord. Because if, it's, if they are a them and they are at war, They will lose that battle. If you are continuing in unrepentant sin and you don't hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches this morning and you continue in that sin, you will not win on that day. Repent. Repent. 
turned back to Christ. This is the work that we're called to do. And we do it with the sword of his word. Christ will one day do it with his sharp two-edged sword, which is his word, but he's given it to us now. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that we have this sharp two-edged sword and that we're to use it wisely in the lives of one another, graciously and well, not hacking at one another with it, but with, with a surgeon's skill. We are to, to apply it to each other's lives. We're to guard our lives and our doctrines, both in the pew and in the pulpit. We do this together. And so, brother and sister in Christ, member of UBC, one of the best ways you can apply this text and this sermon today is for you to show back up at 4.15 today. We have some weighty things that as elders we need to bring to you as a church. We have concerns about the souls of members of this church, and we need you here to join us in prayer and to call them to repent. And we need you to help guard the, the teaching of this church. We don't want to fall into this pit, having let in our enemies into our inner sanctum and say we need to guard these walls. And we're going to teach on that tonight at 530. How do we analyze the, the systems of this world from a biblical perspective? And I know that it's hard. I, I know there's child care issues. I know you got to figure out meals. I know you have other plans. I know that there are other concerns. I know this is a busy week. But please, we need you here. We need to do this heavy work, but we do it together. In Numbers 25, we saw how the people uh, pursued sexual immorality with the Moabites. And, and God, uh, God condemns them, and he condemns the leaders who have allowed it. And he tells them to, uh, to hang those those leaders who have gone to that far. Who, and, and he sends his wrath in among the people. A plague comes in to the people as punishment for their sin. And as the people are, are, are repenting, are, are, are weeping before their God in front of the tent of meeting, in walks one unrepentant brother. In walks one son of Israel uh, pulling along a prostitute out in front of everybody. And he walks that prostitute into his very home to, to continue in his acts of sexual immorality, even as the plague is laying waste to, uh, to the country of Israel. And Phineas sees this. And he rises up when the jealousy, the righteous jealousy of the Lord, and he grabs a spear and he executes this man uh, in the act for the thing that he's done. It's a graphic picture. It's a graphic demonstration of how vigilant we must be to guard ourselves and to guard one another. And look at the commendation that God gives of Phineas in Numbers 25, starting in verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement 
for the people of Israel. When, when we mirror the attitude and actions of Phineas here, having, having the jealousy of God, of, of stopping sin in its tracks, of, of turning back the wrath of God before it spreads further into our congregation, what's amazing is we're actually imitating Christ. We're actually imitating our Savior. He's the perpetual priest. Christ is, is the one who is ever making intercession on our behalf because he has atoned for the sins of the people of God. Yes, this sin is weighty and we need to feel the weight of it. And what we see here in our passage is that God calls us not to turn to ourselves or to false idols or in our own strength, but to turn to him and him alone. He is the answer. He is the answer. And so we hold out for Christ's final feast. Look at verse 17 with me as we close. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is so beautiful. Here we're offered three gifts. Three gifts. To the one who conquers, they receive first and foremost the hidden manna. And what did we learn from John 6 when we read it earlier in the service? That that hidden manna is Christ himself. He is the bread of life. He's the one who came down from heaven. And all who depend on him, well, they have eternal life. They have eternal life. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, you find yourself more described by the middle of this passage than the end, then I would call you today to repent, to turn away from sin and to turn towards Christ and to receive for yourself the very bread of life. Depend on him to be your savior, to wash you clean with the blood that he sacrificed on your behalf by dying on the cross and then rising from the grave. He now offers you this eternal life. You can have this. Turn and trust in Jesus Christ. I would love to talk with you more about that after you can just catch the person sitting in the seat next to you. We would love to help you know what it means to follow Christ, to eat this hidden manna, to subsist on it for the rest of your life. Brother and sister in Christ, look what you have been offered. Look what you have. And so stop eating the food offered, the, the, the food that's been offered up to idols. Instead, eat Jesus. Stop Stop worshiping other false gods. Instead, worship your Savior with every fiber of your being. We have been offered Christ himself. He is the hidden manna. We've also been offered a white stone. Now, history tells us that this white stone is really interesting because it was given to victors of athletic feats. So maybe there'd be an athletic contest and the, the winners at the end of it, they would get this white stone. And that white stone was their entry ticket into the banquet that was held later only for the victors. And that's what we've been offered. We get a ticket into the final feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. We read in, in Revelation 19 
Verse 6 through 9, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you have been invited to this feast. So don't, don't settle for any other fast food joint along the way. Instead, look to Christ. Look to that final feast. Set your eyes upon it. And when we are there, we will discover that we have a new name, a name that he has given us, a name that no one else knows. And instead of having uh, uh, spent our lives pursuing intimacy in this world, particularly in sexual immorality, instead we have held out and waited for that perfect intimacy that we'll have with our Savior. For he has a name that no one knows, and we have a name that no one else knows, and we get to be in eternal communion with him. Hold out for this. Hold out for this, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the great hope for the believer. Set your eyes on that final feast. Set your eyes on that final feast. We'll be reminded of that here in just a moment when we take the Lord's Supper. The, the sun went down on the Trojans, remember? Thinking that, that they had won the war. But when they rose from their feasting, they realized that it had turned into mourning. But our Savior went down in mourning and rose in feasting, and that's who we look to. That's where we set our eyes. He is our eternal hope. Let's wait for his return. Let me pray for us. Christ, you are our only hope. You are the bread of our, of our very lives. Lord, we look to your word. It is sharp. It cuts us. But we trust that you're pruning us that we may bear more fruit. Lord, we pray that we would be steadfast, that we would hold on to your name, that we would hold steady to your faith, that we would not allow false teaching into our hearts or into our church, but instead we would look forward towards you, that we would long for that day. Lord, may it come soon. And in the meantime, Lord, may we continue to proclaim that good news until you return. We pray these things in the precious and holy and matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to take a moment and sing Christ, our hope in life and death. Would you stand and lift the